Well, that's going to leave a mark. <clears throat> Title of the message series as we journey through the Gospel of John Mark. I'm glad to be back. I always miss my church family when I'm not with you. I love my church family. And if you don't know that, stick around. You'll figure it out. We, uh, we like each other and we love each other here. <clears throat> so I always look forward to seeing you. I appreciate that Tim Taylor preached last week in my absence, and I enjoyed the message. I got the CD and listened to it, and I enjoyed it. Today, the message is One Way. It comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. That's our text. We'll take a peek into part of Matthew, but Matthew, 7, or, sorry, Matthew 21, 33 to 46 covers the same story, and so does Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19, and we'll also look a little bit at Luke. John doesn't mention this part of Jesus' life at all. However, we're going to look in John a couple of times. <clears throat> I was a teenager when my grandfather bought a used, uh, worn-out car that wasn't running. I think it was a Grand Torino. And he towed it to our side yard and told me that it would be a good car if I could get it running. And so I remember going out there very vividly, the feeling of popping the hood. I was excited about the car. Popped the hood, raised the, the lid up on it. And I think my grandfather paid 50 bucks for the car. It was pretty cheap. <clears throat> I remember raising the hood and looking at the motor and thinking, what? what am I supposed to do with this? I remember like touching things and like, I don't know what I'm doing. I remember asking for help and I couldn't get help. It seemed like nobody else knew what to do. I went out a couple more times and I would open the hood and look at it, but like, what am I supposed to do with this? This is before the internet, you know, so I didn't know what to do. Ultimately, my grandfather towed the car back to his house, paid a mechanic to fix it, and he actually made some money on it. But what a disappointment I had to be to my grandfather. There's more to this story, I'll tell you as we move along, but I want to read to you from the beginning of our text, Mark chapter 12, verses 1. I'm just going to read verse 1, the first part of the verse in the English Standard Version, talking about Jesus, and he began to speak to them in parables. I love the way Mark does this. Everything starts with an and, and then this, and then that. He's so excited about things. And he began to speak to them in parables after he had already silenced the critics. Now he's telling them stories. What's a parable? A parable is a story that is used to illustrate a truth. Jesus loved telling stories. What happens is when people tell stories, you grab their attention. We like to hear stories. And so Jesus does this. But I want to take you to the King James Version. We're going to follow a rabbit trail on purpose. Here's the King James. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Some of you may have been told that King James is the only real English translation, that kind of thing. Some of you love the King James, and that's fine. I will have in my hands, when you leave today, a copy of the original 1611 King James Bible, so you can look at it for yourself and see it's not even readable. It's very hard to read. But 
for the sake of discussion, I wanted to show you the King James here, and I want to focus on this word husbandman, because that's different than the rest of the translations. Some of us, when we see that, we think, what? Husbands? In fact, oftentimes, that's what wives think. Husbands? Good. The preacher's going to talk about husbands. I've been waiting for this. My husband needs to hear this. <clears throat> Just so that you're aware of it. I have been preaching some 30 years now, and I have said these things that I'm about to tell you, and I have yet to have a single man come up to me at any time after I've said these things. And I've even published in the newspaper multiple times the same thing, and I've yet to have any man come up to me or write me or say, you got it wrong, you don't understand me. Let me explain. Most men, I don't know if you noticed this, but men are uncomfortable, especially fathers, husbands. They're uncomfortable at, at fa on Father's Day, Christmas time, and on their birthdays. When people are making a big thing about them, they're uncomfortable. And it's, they, they would rather, like at Christmas time, most men would rather buy gifts that you would like to open and watch you enjoy that. And they would rather not have gifts to open themselves, not on Father's Day, not on their birthday, not on Christmas. They would rather just not be given the kind of attention that they're getting. Because, and the reason is they don't feel adequate. They don't feel good enough to even be in the role that they're in. They don't feel like they're as respected or respectable as they should be. All those kinds of things are in most men. And so they would rather just people just kind of let it pass by. Don't make a big deal over them. And so where it may, be, it may be true that women might think, husbands, boy, I sure wish the preacher would talk about husbands. Most husbands, if they're in church with you today, or even if they're not, most husbands feel more inadequate than you think they are. And I think that for the most part, most even though we live in a world right now where there's a lot of men in the news that are not setting good examples as what men should be. We live in a world where second-guessing men is something that feels almost natural to everybody right now. But I would submit to you, in my experience, most men that are in church on a regular basis, they're doing okay. <clears throat> I want to talk to you more about that, too, as we move along. But let's look at this. Definition of husband. This is a noun. A male partner in a marriage. And the British, this is a British de definition, the manager of another's property. I knew those people were different. It's totally different. Who thinks of that? When you hear her husband, you think that's a manager of a person's property. Nobody thinks that here. Or a frugal manager. Those are the nouns. Here's the transitive verb definition of that. There's three of them. Um, to manage prudently and economically. Uh, to use sparingly. And an archaic definition, to find a husband for. Definition of husbandry. Now, this is where it starts coming together. Well, some of this might start making sense to you. An archaic use is the care of a household. Well, that's interesting. The control or judicious use of resources, the cultivation or production of plants or animals, or the scientific control and management of a branch of farming and especially of domestic animals. 
Maybe you've heard of that. So even though we don't use it that way regularly when we hear the word husband, we don't think of it the way it's used in the King James, but that's the way it was intended. I want to focus on that for a minute, though, because we're not talking about husbands. I know we follow the rabbit trail on purpose. There's a reason for that. But <clears throat> the text isn't talking about the way we think of husbands. The Greek word, you'll see right behind me, the way you say that is Georgos. It's two words combined. And by the way, it is where we get the word George. That's why it looks like George. The first part is ge, which is earth, you know, where we get the word, uh, the words that begin with geo. That's where we get that. And then the other one is, the other Greek word is ergon, which is worker. So that equals earth worker. That's the Greek word. It's a farmer or a cultivator. The English Standard Version translates it as a tenant. But you might, if you ever look this up, even if you do a Google search on it, you'll find that the parable that Jesus tells in our, in our text today is sometimes called the parable of the wicked husband. Isn't that weird? <clears throat> so I'll read to you in the English Standard Version. I'll read verse 1 in its entirety now. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from some of the fruit, from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Wait a minute, that's not right. No, it actually continues. The story gets worse. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. That's horrible. It gets worse. He had still one other. A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I don't know if you're figuring it out yet or not, but to help you along, I'm going to read to you now from a very familiar passage in John. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, this parable, don't be confused, it's all about Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but... Islam teaches this parable is about Muhammad. But clearly, Scripture tells us it's about Jesus. Our text continues, Mark chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. First verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Matthew gives us a little bit more insight. Matthew 21, 43 has Jesus recorded as saying, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. Wow. 
This might remind you of Romans chapter 11, verses 17 and following. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And I, and I wish I had time to give you more of that, but <clears throat> that passage in Romans is talking about how the Jewish people, they led us, the, Jew, the Hebrews led us to Jesus. In fact, Jesus was a Jew, and that's how we got the Messiah. But the Jews rejected Jesus, and so God has grafted in the Gentiles. And don't be arrogant about that. There are some people that try to say that today, there are preachers, uh, authors of books, so-called experts will say that the Jews are going to go to heaven no matter what. But Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. doesn't matter if you're a Jew, Gentile, or whatever. You have to have Jesus if you plan to go to heaven. That's the truth. There was a hippie thing going on in the 60s, maybe you remember. Big hippie movement, they were doing the peace, remember all of them go around doing the peace sign? There was another movement that sprang up from the hippie movement, and uh, it was from basically one guy really kind of kick-started it. His name was Larry Norman. Anybody in here heard of Larry Norman? Raise your hand. Hey, three of us? Yeah, there were three of us in the first service too. Uh, Larry Norman was a hippie. And he converted to Christianity, but he had long hair, and he had a good singing voice, and very talented musician. And because he converted to Christianity, he thought, I'm going to sing songs about Jesus. So he started that, and instead of the peace sign, he pointed his finger to heaven and said, it's, there's one way, and the one way is Jesus. And, they, and so they were painting all these psychedelic colors on vans and different vehicles, and they had the peace sign. Well, you saw also the one finger pointed up one way. That was the Jesus hippie movement going on. The church rejected this. The church could not stand. Most churches were like, those are devil people singing that kind of devil music. But they were singing about Jesus, and they just didn't like the style. So the church rejected Larry Norman. The crazy thing is, Larry Norman's songs wound up in church hymn books years later. That's kind of funny. Larry Norman's band that he started is interesting because they had all these crazy names of bands. They were all like animals and bugs, like the Beatles and the Turtles and the Birds. There's a whole bunch of them. And Larry Norman thought, how about this name? People. That was the name of his band, People. And they had a one-hit wonder, and it was called I Love You. And they actually used that song today in commercials. It was a very, very popular song. And the band got so popular with their one-hit wonder that they were making a lot of money. And the band decided, you know what, maybe we shouldn't talk so much about Jesus in our song, you know. Probably get more popular if we don't. And Larry Norman said, hey, no, I'm all about Jesus. Well, I'm, I'm going to sing about Jesus. And so he left the band, did his own thing, and made a lot of music that ended up in church hymns. And a few years back, he passed away, and Jonathan and I went down to south of Portland Went to his funeral. Toby Mack was sitting like right here. Like it's so weird seeing Toby Mack and his wife walk in and nobody act like they knew who he was. Like, I know who that is. Jonathan, that's Toby Mack. You want to get a picture taken with him? He goes, No, it's a funeral. Okay, okay. Whatever. <laughs> kind of weird. Larry Norman was buried in a pine box. I haven't seen that in years. But 
it is true. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. Hang on to that thought and talk about that again. I mentioned verse 10 in our text. Let's read it now. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And verse 11, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Notice the footnote. You see it up behind me. It's in your Bibles as well. You have a little note there. Because the Greek actually doesn't say cornerstone. It says chief cornerstone. The main stone. If you pull that out, the building is falling. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23 is where that quote is from. I want to read to you that in context. I don't have time to read all of it, so I'm just going to read verses 21 through 24. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Luke gives us a little bit more. In the narrative, he has Jesus saying, in chapter, Luke chapter 20, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let me suggest to you, do not reject the chief cornerstone. It will not go well for you. And that's what Luke is having Jesus say right here. Jesus said it, and Luke recorded it. Our final verse in our text Mark chapter 12, verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Well, it's not rocket science. Of course it's about them. So they left him and went away. If you haven't gotten this yet, I want you to. God has blessed us and entrusted to us things to manage. Let's talk about some of those. First of all, money. If you haven't figured this out yet, you are in a church that will never beg for your money. The Bible teaches we don't give out of compulsion. We're not supposed to give out of compulsion. So this church never tries to get people to give out of compulsion. We don't even pass an offering plate. So if this is your first time with us, you need to know there will be no offering plate passed. We don't do that. We are never going to beg for your money. And if you're a guest, we're not going to ask you for your money. We support our church, but the membership supports the church. But I'm not, so I'm not, going, to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk about that. How do you manage your money? See, if you understand that God has, that the only money that you have is given to you by God, it's a gift of God then you're less likely going to blow it on things that God would never have you buy. There is a big difference in sins done in ignorance and sins done on purpose. If you read your Old Testament, you'll find that God doesn't even have provision for forgiveness of sins that are done on purpose compared to sins that are done in ignorance. It's an accident. It didn't mean to do it. There's a difference when you accidentally let that cuss word slip out because you smashed your thumb with the hammer. There's no justification for it. You shouldn't do it. That shouldn't be in your vocabulary. So don't just, I don't assume that I just said it's okay. It's not okay. But there's a difference when the cuss word accidentally slips out and when you actually type it into your social media and post it on the internet. 
There's a big difference in accidentally and purposely sinning. You understand, right? So when it comes to money, if you understand that your money is not your money, it's God's money that he allows you to manage, then you're less likely going to spend money on those things that Christians shouldn't even be close to. You understand? There's other things that we're blessed with and trusted to manage, like our stuff. <laughs> when I married Stephanie, I was still in college, and I, had, I, had, I was fortunate enough to finance my first car. And before that, I bought used cars that I always had to work on all the time, trying to fix this and trying to fix that. But I didn't know what I was doing most of the time. But it was a pain to always have to try to rely on a car that's not reliable. I bought a Pontiac 6000. Yeah, I thought I was living it up. Um, it was a three-year-old car. I got it financed. And I, I, I took on a job that required a lot of commuting. So I was driving a couple hours one way each day. I was doing that to make ends meet. And then one day, it overheated. Had a mechanic look at it, and the mechanic said, when's the last time you changed the oil? And I looked at him like, why? I hadn't. Ever. I don't know if, you've, if you know this or not, but the cheapest cars are usually bought by the poorest people. And the poorest people oftentimes can't afford to do the regular maintenance that they're supposed to do. And so in my mind, this car is a piece of junk. But the reality was, I was not maintaining it. I didn't change the oil in it. I knew better. I just didn't want to spend the money. I, you know, I wanted to feed the kids. You know? And so there I was with a car that I had payments on that needed the engine worked on. And it needed a lot of work. Mechanic gave me an estimate. I go, whoa, I can't pay that. So I learned how to do some serious engine work really fast. Figured out how to take the head off and do a head gasket and have to take the head somewhere and have it plain and do all that stuff. It's crazy how much I had to learn and I learned it. But I can tell you this I was not being very good as a Christian managing what God had blessed me with. I was not maintaining my stuff. <clears throat> He's also blessed us and entrusted us to manage our home and what's in our home, our responsibilities in our home, my role in, in our home, in my home, your role in your home. So you need to ask yourselves those questions. If you are a leader in your home, a mother or a father, you need to ask yourself if you're managing that very well. If you're a kid in the home and you call yourself a Christian, is that how you behave in your home? Jesus please with how you communicate with your parents? Husband and wife? Oh, well, that leads me to the next one, relationships. See, God has blessed us and entrusted to us things to manage, including relationships. Some of them are surface relationships. You know, it's that neighbor that you don't see very much, but every now and then you say hi to him. Or it's that, that uh, co-worker that you 
regularly see, but you really don't know them very well. Or it's, it's that person that you see regularly at that business that you frequent. Seems like you're always right there in front of that same person. Relationships also would include the people that you're really close to. You know, family, friends, spouses, parents. We've been blessed with them. And we're supposed to manage these relationships, not just kind of float along and just however it goes is how it's going to go. He's also blessed us and entrusted us with time. So many people in this crazy world in which we live don't know how to manage their time. They don't know how to prioritize. And it seems like everything that enters their mind is a crisis. Everything. It's like every time they turn around, there's always unnecessary drama that's created because they don't know how to manage their time. The last thing I'll bring up right now is Ourself. He's blessed us and he's entrusted us to manage ourselves. I'm going through a book, I already read it once. I'm reading it again. And I'm reading it again for the second time because the first time I read it, I kind of thought I already had a grip on the subject. The second time I'm reading it and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know what, I need to read this and see if I can self evaluate more. I don't think I read it that way. And I was like, as I'm reading through it the second time, right off the bat, at the first of the book, I notice it says, this isn't going to help you much unless, unless you self-examine. Somehow I missed that. Too many times we like to see other people's flaws and point them out and think how other people could do better, but we don't always look at ourselves and think how we could do better. There's many other things I could bring up, but those are the ones I'm bringing up right now. And so you know that God has blessed us and he's entrusted to us things to manage, like money, self, relationships, time, home, and stuff. I have a question for you. How's that working for you? God's entrusted you with these blessings. You're supposed to be managing. How's that working for you? I heard about a man who was going through a very difficult time in his life. I, I, I had met him. He, he wasn't a friend yet, but he would become a friend. He was kind of a gruff guy. Uh, he, he, another preacher knew him better than I did, and he told me, he said, you might want to pray for Tom. He's going through a lot of stuff right now. He's going through a very, very difficult divorce, and he's not happy. He's not taking it well. And he was a mechanic. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I will pray for him, but I'll do, I think I know what Jesus would have me do. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, take my car to him because I was going to change the spark plugs. I learned how to do that. So I was going to change the spark plugs. I mean, you know, I can, I can have him change the spark plugs. I think I had him replace the wires too. So I drove over to see Tom knowing he's going through a lot, and I told him I'd heard and I'd be praying for him. And I, you know, had him, paid him to do my wires. But when I pulled in to his business I saw engines and transmissions sitting on crates out in front of his business. Just totally just, just looked like a, almost like a junkyard of engines and transmissions. And I asked him about them. What are you, what are you doing with all this? He goes, I, I got to pay the bills. I, can't, I don't have time to organize. I just put them out here. And I, I don't have time to organize all this. Oh, 
my elders in the church were on me about spending too many hours doing church stuff. I need to, you know, I need to take some time and do something else. And so I thought, wait a minute, I have an idea. So I talked to my elders, and they thought it was a good idea. If I went and volunteered for him one or two days a week and helped him organize. So I drove back, and he said, something wrong with the car? No, no, I'm here to organize your stuff. And he goes, don't you move my stuff. I'll never find it again. I said, no, no, you better tell me because I'm going to start moving it. Why would you do that? Well, I, I think that's what Jesus would have me do. I don't know how to help you otherwise. You're going through a lot. I figure it will be good for you to have this stuff organized. And we did. In fact, we ended up building a 40 by 60 foot addition to his shops. And, and, and I got stuff organized for him. And after a couple years, I was actually working as a mechanic one or two days a week under him to expedite the process of getting the work done. I had fun. So I went from, from, from that crazy feeling of opening the hood of a car and looking at the engine going, what is that? What am I supposed to do here? All the way to getting paid as a mechanic. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, there's some of you that when you open up the Bible and when the preacher starts talking about these kinds of things, some of you are thinking, what is that? How am I supposed to do this? I don't know if I could ever do that. How am I supposed to measure up to that? Let's go back to John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one way. I'm telling you, the answer is Jesus. If you get Jesus right in your life, he will help you. And you won't be overwhelmed with the things that are in front of you. And if you're a guy in the church, specifically addressing men, if you're a husband, future husband, father, future father, and you feel what I was talking about earlier, feel inadequate. It's like, I don't know if I could ever measure up. In a world that's not real friendly to men right now, I, real, I know that that's very real. And I've had several of, in the church tell me this sort of thing. And so what's happening for me as a preacher, I'm thinking, if this is the way men in the church are feeling, then as a preacher, I need to do my job and give them the tools that they think they need. And so I'm actually developing a plan. And if you're interested, if you're a man and you're thinking, I, I want to do better. If you're that guy, you should talk to me after church. We'll see if you might fit into this plan. I got a, I, I got a growing group of men that want to be in on this. Uh, these, are, these are not men that we consider arrived, men who are there, that we look up to and esteem. These are men that feel like they need a shot in the arm in several areas. So we're, you talk to me about that because I know the feeling of opening the hood and going, oh, I can't do this. And I know the feeling of trusting Jesus and going his direction and him giving you the tools that you need to do what's in front of you. <laughs> I should tell you, that mechanic, we're talking, this is 20 years later. He still calls me. Hey, Jeff. You remember when you put those brake pads for that 1972 Ford pickup? No, I don't. I wish I could help him. <laughs> but if you can figure this out, that if you make Jesus your priority, he can help you. He can help you get to the point where you're adequate for the task before you. He can help you prioritize. He can, he can help you manage the things you need to manage. 
don't reject the chief cornerstone. If you can get that figured out, that's going to leave a mark. Not just on you, but on your world. When the preacher is done preaching, and I have arrived at that point, what we do is the, the worship team makes their way to the stage, and we, we sing a song. It's a decision song. It's just one of the, like the other songs we were singing. And we sing it, and we mean the words. But some of us need to pause from that. Some of us in the middle of, the, of that need to say a little prayer to God. We need to say something like, God, I do feel inadequate. I feel like I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I want to be there. I need your help. Some of you need to say a prayer like, you know what, God, I came here today with a lot of stuff going on in my life, and I've been trying to handle it by myself. I want want your help, Lord. I hand it to you. What do I need to do now? Some of you got other things you need to reconcile with God. You need to talk to him. During the song of decision, that's when you should do that. If you need help or you need the church's help, come forward. We'll be glad to help you, whatever you're going through. Otherwise, just join the rest of us and sing the song of decision. Let's stand and sing.